right. Good morning, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Um, I have absolutely loved getting the opportunity to preach through the book of Acts. It, it is one of those books that everything that you read in there is just so amazing and can be directly applied to what we do uh, every day. The struggles that they dealt with, our struggles that we dealt with, um, it is just so relevant. And I love being able to teach through this uh, in part because I love history too. And when we start talking about the things that are going on from a spiritual standpoint and from a birth of the church standpoint, there's also a historical standpoint that really dovetails into it very well. And for me, that makes the whole thing come alive when I can see how things progress through. And so um, for those of you who haven't been here in a while, we're working our way through the book of Acts. Um, We are on week nine. We've got a few more weeks to go before we finish it up, but there's been so much that has happened so far. If you read through the book of Acts, I I recommend that you do it if you haven't done it. Um, But it's just amazing. We start out with the birth of the church. We start out with the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples at Pentecost. You know, and then we move into uh, Stephen, whose reward for being faithful and sharing the gospel is being stoned to death. But then, of course, that causes the disciples to scatter and start actually carrying out the commission of Jesus to spread the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. So it actually causes that to happen. Then we see um, Saul starting to persecute the church, literally dragging people out of their homes because they are turning to this new thing called the way. And then that in turn then causes more scattering. Uh, we see Philip going out and sharing the gospel. He goes up to a place called Samaria that has uh, traditionally been considered kind of off limits and sort of beneath their efforts. And he goes up there and he starts uh, sharing the gospel with them. And then we see an amazing uh, moment when Saul has his come to Jesus meeting, right? And then starts to realize who Christ is and the error of his ways. Pastor Gabe taught on that. It was, a, it was an amazing message. Um, and then last week, I talked about Peter excuse me, in his ministry going out and then beginning to share the gospel with the Gentiles. So that's where we are right up until this week. This week, we're going to deal with chapters 13 and chapters 14, and it actually makes a transition. Up until now, it's been about the birth of the church, and it's been uh, a lot about Peter and and his ministry and what he has done to help get the church jump-started. From this point on, we kind of make a transition, and we're going to be talking a lot about Saul or Paul and his ministry as he moves forward. So kind of watch for that. Now, there is a lot going on. We've already talked about a lot of different things that are going on. And in these two chapters, there's a lot going on. There are um, people being healed, uh, people being made blind. I mean, there's so many different pieces, as there have been as we work our way through this. But here's something I want you to just pay attention to. As we have been teaching in our bedrock class, when you study the Bible, when you really go in to study it, you need to study a chapter or, or even an entire book as a whole. So you need to ask yourself, why was this written? Who was it written to? What's the point of this entire book? And so when you go back then to say an event that we'll talk about today, there's a man uh, who was made blind. 
Okay, he's kind of a stubborn guy, and he ends up being made blind. And you look at that in isolation, and it might be like, how does this fit into everything? But you look at it as a whole, part of the book of Acts, and you can see how it ties in to the entire point of the book of Acts. And if you look at the book of Acts, here are three points that I want you to look for. Okay, it's been evident, it's becoming more and more evident as we've gone along. But as we talk about today, these two chapters, I want you to look for these three points. Point number one, the Father God chose you. He chose you. It was by no mistake that you were sitting here. It is no mistake that your heart is open to the word that, that he has for you and what he has done for you and his blessing. He chose you. Second thing I want you to look for is that he sent his son Jesus for you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you, to take your place so that you could be reconciled back to the Father. And then the third thing is that the Holy Spirit will empower you to do everything that you need to do. So as we go through the scriptures today, again, there's a lot and there's a lot going on, but I want you to look for those three points in just about everything that we talk about and then ask yourself this question. What am I going to do with this? Because it's not enough to know the history. It's not enough to know the scripture. It's not enough even to hear that, that rhema word that comes directly from the Holy Spirit saying, this is what this means to you. We have to take that next step or it's all meaningless. And what's that next step? You got to do something with it. You have to do something about what you have heard. And so as we go through, I want you to pray that. In fact, before I get started, I want to take just a moment and just pray that for all of us. So just, would you join me in this? Heavenly Father, I just thank you that your word is here for us all to see. And I just pray that we would have open hearts, open minds, maybe to hear or see things in a way that we have never seen them before. Help us to set aside our preconceptions of how things go and be open to what you want us to see. And then, Father, I just pray that we are then bold enough to step out in what you have called us to do with the, for, with the knowledge that you have selected us to carry forth the word into all the nations. And so, Father, show us what our part in that is and give us then the boldness to step out in that. Father, we just thank you for what you're going to do and for what you're going to speak to us. And we lift up Jesus in this place. And it's his name we pray in. Amen. All right, so... With all of that, <clears throat> with all of this stuff going on, let's go ahead, jump into the scripture, and see what Barnabas and Saul did with this. Okay, so let's go to our very first scripture. Now, I apologize, I'm sucking on a throat lozenge because of the dry air making me cough. So it's either I cough all the time or I suck on a lozenge. So that's, that's what we get. All right, so Acts 13, 1 to 4. Now, there were at Antioch. In the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there, they sailed to Cyprus. 
All right, so let's go back to the top of that scripture really quick. And I'll talk about just a couple things that I want you to know. At Antioch, okay, there was the church that was there. It contained prophets and teachers. So this was a, a, an established, or shortly established, but an established church, and it was starting to grow. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean. This is the interesting part, this last sentence here. And Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and of course Saul. Who is Menaean, and why is it important that he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch? And what does that all mean? doesn't necessarily mean anything deeply theological, but the explanation of that is Herod the Tetrarch is uh, Herod Antipas. That's his other name that he's known by, okay? And he is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, years ago, years ago, before he was Herod the Great, when he was just Herod the Mediocre, he... You guys are sharper than last night. It took him a while to get that. When he was just Herod and he was on his way up, he met a prophet, and this prophet's name was Menaean. And this prophet said to him, you are going to be great. You are going to be made great. You are going to be ruler of nations. And so, so that was Menaean. This is actually his, this Menaean is that Menaean's son. And we don't know what happened to him, but clearly something happened to him because he ends up coming into Herod the Great's household and being raised just alongside of Herod's son, Herod the Tetrarch or, or Herod Antipas. So kind of a stepson, if you will, adopted stepson of uh, Herod the Great. And so that's where we are. Barnabas, by the way, sorry, Barnabas... Um, is that, that name, we always talk about names having meaning, and the word Barnabas just means son of encouragement. He's an encourager. He's an exhorter, and that's who Barnabas is. He, that's just, it's just in his nature. So let's go on just a little bit. Verse 2, um, still up there. Yeah, there were, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Here's what's important to know about this is that the Holy Spirit chose them. They weren't sitting there in the middle of this church doing whatever it is that they were doing, ministering to the Lord and fasting. They weren't doing this and said, you know what? We ought to head out too. You know what would be a good idea? Let's go on a trip and let's share the gospel on this trip. They didn't choose this. The Holy Spirit chose them. And that's important to know. Because although it would have been a good idea if they said, hey, let's, let's, let's just head out. The other guys, Philip, these other guys are heading out to do this. Let's take a trip of our own and let's share this. Okay, it might have been fruitful. It might not have been. But the important thing to know is that when the miraculous happens that we're going to see, it's because we have been called by the Holy Spirit. They were set apart literally for this, for this time. Then verse 3, fasting and prayer. Then when they had fasted and prayed, remember all the way back when we were teaching uh, about the Sermon on the Mount, okay, Jesus actually says, when you pray, when you fast, he's talking about spiritual disciplines, okay, not if you do, but when you do, it's an expected thing that we do, and through that, we end up getting enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we end up hearing what our mission is, what our plan is, and that empowerment that comes upon it. And the important thing, they're talking about, there are teachers, there's prophets, these are, these are, are men of some substance. 
And they still pray and they still fast for guidance from the Lord. Okay, so there's no point at which you reach and say, I got this, right? And I don't need to check in anymore. We should always be checking in. And that, again, when we follow that and we're faithful to what we hear when we check in, that divine guidance, that's when the miraculous happens. So the last verse, verse 4. Being sent up by the Holy Spirit, excuse me, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's see that map really quick. Here's a map. You'll see this a couple times. I tried to get the one that's a little bit more readable. The blue line is their trip out, and the red line is their trip back. Okay? So they start here up in Antioch, okay? Antioch, Syria. Start there, and they just make the short trip over to the harbor, which is in Seleucia. And they grab a boat, and they head over to Cyprus, landing in Salamis. Okay, probably, no, we don't know this for sure, but Barnabas was from Cyprus. That's where Barnabas was from. So there's a good chance that they chose to go by Cyprus first, either because he wanted to check in at home, or he just knew some churches there, some people that really needed some support, maybe had contact with them. But Barnabas is from Cyprus, so that's one of the first places that they head. So they go down there. Go to Cyprus, and that's where the ministry starts. Um, scripture is interesting, says a, a funny thing at this point. It just says, kind of as an aside, that, um, that John, also known as Mark, meets up with them at that point and travels on with them for a while anyway. John, also known as Mark, this is one of the things that the Bible does all the time. John, also known as, and it's, it's thrown out these names, which can be a little bit confusing. But we might know John Mark a little bit better by one of his later claims to fame in that he writes the Gospel of Mark. This is the Mark that ultimately ends up writing the Gospel of Mark. He's actually uh, Barnabas's cousin. So again, another reason why maybe he joins up. Maybe he was there already, and that's where they joined him. But it, Scripture just says that he joined him there. This will be important a little bit later, and I'll talk to you about that as we go along. But that's where we are. They come to this town called Paphos. Actually, they land in, uh, in Salamis first. Let's see. Let me back up, make sure I didn't skip something. Okay. They come to the town of Paphos. They land in Salamis. They preach their way through the islands of Cyprus, and they come down to Paphos down here. One of the first things that they do is they run into a magician. A magician, some scriptures say a sorcerer. Now back then, magicians, sorcerers were more than just people who did magic tricks, right? They were also, many times, uh, they would prophesy. So false prophets, fortune tellers, different things like that. So they kind of encompass all of those in the same term of magician or sorcerer. They come across this man, and his name is Bar-Jesus. That's what his name is. So call himself Bar-Jesus. He, um, he has ingratiated himself and kind of worked himself into the inner circle of the proconsul, the Roman proconsul of the island of Cyprus. Now, proconsul is basically a, a governor who's been assigned by Rome over that territory. And so there's a governor that's been assigned to Cyprus, and this magician has kind of worked his way into his inner circle, um, as, as we assume as like one of his advisors, kind of one of his top advisors, or at least he wants to be one of his top advisors. Now, Scripture says that this man, his name is actually Sergius Paulus, is the proconsul. It says that he's a man of some intelligence. 
Okay, meaning that he's just by nature, he wants to learn. And so he wants to learn more about what's going on. What is it that Barnabas and Saul are, are preaching? What is this new thing? So he actually summons them, Barnabas and Saul, summons them to his, to his palace or his, his court where he is. They go there and they start talking to the governor. Now, when they start talking to the governor, this really, really angers the magician, Bar-Jesus, whose scripture now also identifies as a man named Elemus. Another one of those things where it changes, either Bar-Jesus or Elemus. And if you remember when Pastor Gabe taught the difference between Saul, which is Paul's kind of Jewish name, and Paul, which is his Gentile name, okay, sometimes they use those interchangeably depending on the context and where they are and what they're talking about. So we have Bar-Jesus, who's drawing on the authority of God okay, to do these things. He's saying, I'm receiving my authority from God to do these magic and, and tell this prophecy. But then he reverts back to his, to his Greek name, which is Elemus, okay, when he's talking to the proconsul. So he's very antagonistic against this. He's angry. He's, he's seeing that the proconsul is starting to be swayed by the words of Barnabas and Saul, and he doesn't like that. He sees that he's starting to lose his grip on power just a little bit. And so this is where we have our next scripture. The Holy Spirit actually steps in to give a little assistance to Saul. Acts 13, 9 to 12. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, okay, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. Now think, imagine you're the magician, okay? And Paul is looking at you, fixed his gaze, he's staring right at you, and he says this, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Struck blind because of his interference with what Paul and Barnabas were doing. Now the important thing to note here is that this is temporary. This isn't a permanent striking blind. This is a temporary thing, and it was done specifically to show the apostolic authority that Paul had. Okay, it was to illustrate the fact to the proconsul specifically that there is much more power here than just words. Okay, and some interesting, hap- thing, interesting things happen through that. The very next scripture, Acts 13, 12, I'll just read it to you. It says, then, as a result of this, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So, as a result of that act of being able to strike him temporarily blind and the teaching of the gospel that Paul was bringing, Paul and Barnabas were bringing, the proconsul believed. If you can get the governor, the proconsul of an entire island to now be friendly to the word, to be open to accepting that, that opens all kinds of possibilities for the gospel then to begin to spread throughout that island. When you go straight for the top and convince him then the people underneath him now are more open to that. So that's the result of that. So Paul, we'll see now from this point on in Scripture, Paul is not referred to as Saul anymore. 
we see a shift. And from this point forward, perhaps because of this new authority that he's got, we start seeing him exclusively in Scripture as Paul. So, and he takes top billing. Up until now, in this chapter, it's always been Barnabas and Saul. Now, it's Paul and Barnabas. Could just be a literary fact of the way that Luke wrote this, or it could be more significant. You'll have to see what the Holy Spirit tells you on that. So here we are. They're setting out for the mainland now. Show me that map again really quick. So they're leaving. They're leaving Paphos, and they're heading back up to the mainland here, and they're heading to this area called Persia. Not Persia, but you can pronounce it Perga, but it's pronounced Persia. That's where they're heading. Um, Scripture there is Acts 13, 13, and I'll read this one to you also. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. Listen to this. This is interesting. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We know that this was a little bit more significant than it sounds right here. Because this doesn't sound like a big deal. Okay, John, John decided, okay, I'm done, and he left. But we know that it caused some tension. Because a little bit later, we find out in Acts 15, as a matter of fact, we find out that Barnabas wants to call John Mark to come back and help them again. And Paul says, mm -mm, I'm not having it. He abandoned us already. I don't want him to come back and join us. This causes enough tension. It's another way that you know that scripture is real. It's not just a feel-good book written by a bunch of guys who sat down because it wouldn't include things like this. Okay, Paul is, the other than Jesus, right, the most significant character in the New Testament, the writer of the majority of the New Testament. He's a big deal. And here he is having a squabble with one of his companions and says, I don't want him to be a part of our group as we go forward. And in fact, Paul and Barnabas, at that point later, not happening now, but a little bit later, they end up splitting and going their separate ways. It's kind of interesting. So just a, that's just an aside right there. We see that, that happening in this case. Opens the door. Actually, Paul ends up on his second journey, has a new sidekick instead of Barnabas. It's Silas. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But so Paul and Barnabas... They travel up. They go all the way up to Antioch in Sidia, up, up there at the very top. Now, this is not Antioch, Syria, so don't confuse those. Antioch in Sidia. They travel all the way up there, and the first thing they do is that they go right into the synagogue. They arrive in town, go directly to the synagogue, and they sit in. On, they, must, they must have arrived on the Sabbath, so they go in, and they start listening. They just join the crowd, and they start listening to what's going on there at the synagogue. And what's going on there typically is that they go through and they read scripture. They have kind of a litany of scriptures that they go down through and they're reading these scriptures. And again, Paul and Barnabas are just sitting there and they're, they're enjoying the reading. And they get to the end of the, of the kind of traditional readings and the leader of the synagogue now turns to Paul. He must have recognized, hey, we have some honored guests here. And he turns to Paul and he says, hey, do you have any words of encouragement for us? Anything uplifting? Anything that you want to share? And we know when you say that to one of the apostles of Jesus, you are opening the door, right? <clears throat> so here's what happens. Now, this is, by the way, this is Paul's single 
First of all, it's his first recorded sermon in Acts. He may have preached before, but this is his first recorded sermon, and it's also the longest of any that you'll read. So if you want to kind of read the gist of what he's doing, I won't read it to you because it's long, but it's Acts 13, 16 to 41. If you want to write that down and just read that on your own, it's amazing. He goes in and he starts preaching about um, the Exodus, about the destruction of Canaan. Um, He starts preaching about the judges, and he's talking about uh, the prophets and the kings and King Saul, and he's, and he's recounting and he's preaching all these things to those there in the synagogue, and you can just see them like, this is, this is good stuff. He's preaching good stuff to them, and they're starting to kind of be pulled in and go, okay, this, this guy's saying some great stuff. Then he goes on and he starts preaching about King David. Okay, and again, they're going, this is, this is good stuff. And this is kind of where he ends up, and he's preaching about King David. And then what we find is what he's doing, actually, rather than arguing Jesus with these people, he's proving Jesus to them. He's using the Old Testament that they knew very well. They didn't call it the Old Testament, by the way. It was their testament. It's only old to us. He's using that to prove Jesus as Messiah to them. It's an amazing thing that he does. And he, he says this. He reminds them of this prophecy regarding David. Acts 13, 23 says, From the descendants of this man, okay, meaning David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus Christ. He's actually referencing 2 Samuel, where God himself is promising David that he will bring from his descendants a ruler and a Savior. So, he, he references those things, and then he just boldly and really explicitly goes on to preach the good news and the gospel of who Jesus Christ is to these men in the synagogue, okay? And they are loving it. They are loving it. They are eating it up. And we come to Acts 13, 38-39. This is, again, this is Paul speaking to them. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Okay, chances are the law of Moses is exactly what they were reading at the beginning when Paul and Barnabas arrived there. And he's saying, through him, forgiveness, and you'll be freed. The things the law couldn't set you free from. In other words, he's saying, Jesus was sent for you. And they're starting to get it. They're starting to go, this is awesome. We love this teaching. We love the truth that he's bringing. He is, he's really, he's not arguing. Again, he's proving it through scripture that Jesus is who he says he is. And they are absolutely loving it. In fact, they're actually begging him. They're saying, hey, can you come back again next Sabbath and teach us more? Because this is good stuff. We want to hear more of this. Come back. And he says, I'll do it. Cool. So we don't know what he does in that week in between. He runs some errands there in town. I don't know what he's doing. Probably if they had a Costco and it was me, he would have he gone to Costco in that week. Sorry. But then the next Sabbath, Acts 13, 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Nearly the whole city. So by insinuation, we're saying that this, they didn't just go into the synagogue anymore. Nearly the whole city. They couldn't have fit in there. 
Okay, so maybe they're on the steps of the synagogue and people are outside. Maybe they're in a town square. But either way, we do know that nearly the whole city, and this was no small town, it's a little village. This is a big city. Nearly the whole city came to here. Things are looking good, right? He's gone into the synagogue. He's preached Jesus to them and they're accepting it and they're loving it. And things are starting to look pretty good for Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas and their ministry, right? But what happens every time we start thinking things are looking good? Exactly. That sound effect. The Jews see this. They see the giant crowds. And all of a sudden they're going, he's sharing this gospel not just with us, but with everyone. It was supposed to just be our thing. But now he's sharing it with the common people, the Gentiles. These, now it's tainted. And we don't want it anymore. They fly into a jealous rage, saying this thing that was supposed to just be our thing, this exclusive thing for us, now you're sharing it with everybody? We don't want it anymore. Not only do we not want it anymore, but we don't want you anymore. So he's he's bold, though. Paul is bold, and it says, Acts 13, 46, I'll read it to you. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Now, he's looking at the Jews at this point who were throwing a fit and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first because you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, now we are turning to the Gentiles. He says, we offered it to you, but you yourself have judged yourselves unworthy. God didn't judge them unworthy. They judged themselves unworthy, and they rejected it just because it wasn't their secret thing. It was open to everyone, and that wasn't good enough for them. God had deemed them worthy. This is a a habit, and you'll see this, that whenever Paul goes into a new town, a new city, a new village, he always goes to the synagogue first, always goes to the Jews first, shares the word with them first before he goes out and shares it with the, with the Gentiles. The reason for that is because if the Jews saw him sharing it with the Gentiles first, they would consider it tainted and it would be dirty. It wouldn't be anything that they wanted. Oh, if it's theirs, then we don't want it. So he always, by habit now, well, you'll see every time he goes in and he shares it in the synagogue first, getting their agreement, getting their hearts open to it, and then he goes outside, and we see that all the time. So Paul has to remind them, of this, Acts 13, 47, he says this, for so the Lord has commanded us. Now he's quoting this from Isaiah 49. He says, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. He's reminding of of that scripture from Isaiah 49, which they would have probably known pretty well. And the Gentiles hear this now and they're rejoicing. They're flipping it. They are absolutely loving this. They accept it and they go, we can have this thing too. And they're absolutely loving it. They are loving it. But let me share with you an interesting little point of theology here. It's actually kind of a critical point. The very next scripture that we see after this, Acts 13, 48, we got it on the screen. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And this is what I want to talk about. That last, the last half of this. 
And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. What's that mean, as many as had been appointed? What does that mean? You ever thought of it? It means salvation, yes. But what about as many as? Is there a preset number? Does the Lord have a list of, okay, these are appointed and these are not? You ever heard the, the doctrine of Calvinism? Predestiny? The elect? You heard of those terms? Okay, that's what they're talking about here. That's where a lot of people get that and say, okay, they had to have been appointed in order to believe. And therefore, those who weren't appointed, if their name's not on the list, there ain't nothing you can do. They're not going to believe and they're not going to go to heaven. That's what a strict Calvinist would argue with you. But it's important to understand that word, that word appointed, had been appointed. That word appointed has been translated many different ways, most damagingly, I believe, in the English, okay, as pre-appointed or predestined. Actually started out as being just um, um, destined, or ordained, and then that morphed somehow from ordained into preordained. There's a difference between ordained and preordained, right? There's certainly a difference here, but that's not even an accurate translation of that word in this context. Different scriptures, yes, but not in this one. That word had been appointed. What that means, it translates as the Greek word of tasso, okay? T-A-S-S-O, that's all it means. And here's what that word means to take your assigned rank in the army. It's a military term, meaning to take your assigned rank. So that means that, that, means that God has a place for us assigned in his ranks, in his army. We have a place assigned for us. Are we going to take it? So it's not that we're preordained whether we're going to believe or whether we're not going to believe or whether there's a space for us or whether there's not. There is. What's not preordained is whether we're going to accept that or not. That's the difference. It's actually a present tense verb. That word tasso is a present tense verb, meaning it's happening now. It's not a lifetime condition, a permanent condition, meaning it was ordained back then and it is what it is and it can't change. It's a present tense verb, meaning it's happening now, it's happening every day. It's important to understand the true word and the true translation. So it's debated, it's debated all the time, okay? And there are theologians on both sides who can very well argue their particular point. And I'm not here to say one's right and one's wrong but I want to show you my interpretation of the scripture that points to that not being the case. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, again, this is, this is uh, Paul himself, and he's speaking to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, is he speaking to the Jewish elect at this point? He's not. He's speaking to a highly Gentile audience here, and he's saying he chose us in him. 
So I want you to look at this logically. Why would Father God send us, and there's many scriptures that I'm not going to pull out for time's sake, why would Father God send Jesus to make himself known to all of us and offer salvation to all who would believe in order to say, okay, you believe, that's great that you believe, but your name's not on the list, so you're not getting in. Why would, Scripture says, all of creation testifies, this thing called general revelation, that everything testifies to the goodness and the mercy of God. Why would that be the case so that people, if your name's not on the list, you can know of me, you can know how graceful and merciful I am, but you're not getting into heaven. Does that make sense? Does that fit the character of a good father? Does that fit the character of a loving father God who wrote every single word in this as a promise to you as his child? Every word in there is a promise. And it's not a promise that, man, it'd sure be great if your name was on the list. It just isn't. Sorry. I don't believe that. So before you start writing your emails to me, <laughs> let me point this out. I am not saying that everyone goes to heaven regardless. Okay, Scripture is clear. There is one way. There is one way. And what's that one way? It's through Jesus. We must profess and confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the only way. Okay, so that's the only way we get, but that way is available to all of us. What it means, what it means, that term predestiny, is that it means that our Father God, who is omniscient, he knows everything before it happens. He knew beforehand that although it's offered to everyone, there would be many who would reject Okay. And scripture doesn't say it. We can argue the theology of this. God may have known the individual person who's going to reject, but he offers it to him anyway. You ever offer something to your children that you know is really good for them, even though you know they're going to turn their nose up at it? <laughs> right? Flippant example, but it's still a good example. In fact, there's a quote by a theologian named Charles Ellicott. He says this, this is the best way that I could think to put it, and it's a direct quote from him. A man does not choose a certain action because it is foreknown, but it is foreknown because he will choose it. Okay? It doesn't happen because we have free will. God knows that many of us are going to not accept that gift, but it's offered to us anyway. So let's move on. Let's move on. The Jews, now what happens here? Just time, anytime things look like they're going good, the Jews incite a riot. The Jews incite a riot. They drive Paul and Barnabas out of town. Okay, let's show the map again. They leave town and they travel down to this place called Iconium. The map is slightly skewed there, but they take a stop and they stop in Iconium. That's where we are. And in Acts 14.1, it says this. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. Again, they go to the synagogue first and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? They continue to preach. They continue to, to make believers in Iconium until things are going good, right? until they catch wind of a couple different plots to stone them to death. 
because their word is starting to get so popular. So what they do is they just decide we're taking off. They leave. They leave Iconium and they head down to this place, uh, towards this place called Derby. But again, they do this in reaction because the Jews are throwing a fit. They get, before they get to Derby, they stop off in Lystra. Acts, 13, uh, Acts 14, I'm sorry, 8 to 10. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and began to walk. That's significant. It's significant for a couple reasons. Because the crowds see this. The crowds in Lystra, they see this, and they begin to actually worship Paul. Because they'd heard of what the things that he was doing, and now they saw this right in front of them, and they start worshiping Paul. Why do they worship Paul? Okay, number one, yeah, because they've heard these things, but there's more to it. It's a little bit deeper than that. And let me share this with you. This is Acts 14, 11 to 12. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So just a, a quick illustration on local lore, local legend, okay? Local legend in that town held, and and you can look this up if you're familiar with Greek mythology, that Zeus and Hermes actually had a little kind of a bet going with each other, okay? Now again, they're polytheistic, so they believe in Zeus and Hermes and all these different gods. So in their legend, um, Hermes and Zeus had this little bet going, and they said, I bet we can go to this town called Lystra, We can walk in in disguise asking for food, asking for help, asking for lodging, asking just for people to interact with us, and nobody will. They'll just shun us because they're that kind of people. Okay, and so there was this argument. And so what they did is that they came down by lore. They came down to Lystra, and they walked around incognito. So they disguised themselves. What they found was that everybody rejected them. Nobody would let them in. Nobody would feed them except one couple. It was one couple that, that the Lord says that actually invited them in and fed them. So what was their response? Okay, they flooded the town and killed everybody, except for these two. So that's their local legend. And so when they see this thing happening and somebody says, hey, this must be Zeus and Hermes testing us again. So the local priest, he comes and they start doing sacrifices to them, just like they would if it was Zeus and Hermes, and it takes quite some time before they can convince these people that we are just men. In fact, Scripture says that we're just men like you. Stop doing this. But eventually, they are able to convince them that they're just men. They start preaching the goodness and the mercy of God. They start there, and they start with this, Acts 14, 16, 17. He says, in the generations gone by, he, meaning Father God, permitted all nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even when we don't know him, Father God is good to us. 
Father God leaves witness for us. I have been good to you. And he's saying right here, he's telling them that God is good to you. Whether you know him or not, he's good to you. How much better when you know him and know his heart. So, again, things are going good now, right? People have turned and they're starting to realize, okay, they're, they're still, these guys are amazing and their teaching is amazing. And they're starting to, to really love this teaching and things are going good. And what's the next thing that happens when things are going good? Acts 14, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They traveled to get there. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. They literally stone him and drag him out of the city and just dump him outside of the city. The key there, as we know, supposing him to be dead. He didn't really die. And in fact, in the next couple lines, you see, after a while, he comes to, gets up, dusts himself off. Now, he's been stoned, they think, to death, so he's pretty beat up. What does he do? Scripture says he walks back into town. Now, it's evening, so what he does, he walks back into town, and he just sleeps the night. The next morning, he gets up, and he takes off. Show me that map again really quick. He gets up, and he heads down to Derby. Derby down here is kind of the far end of his route, and then he, and then he circles back. Goes down to Derby. So what happens there is he, he preaches the word. He preaches the word. People are believing. People are converting. This is one of the few places where they actually leave him alone. Things go well for them in Derby. So the rest of the, the, rest of the uh, section here, Paul and Barnabas, they head back. They head back the way they came, retracing their, their route almost exactly, except for they don't stop off in Cyprus. They just go straight back to Antioch. They go back home, and they're praising God all the way. The significant thing to me about that is that they stop at every town. Every town where they were driven out of town, every town where there were plots to stone them, every town where they did stone them, they stop, and they encourage, and they build up, and they exhort the church, and they appoint elders, and they're, and they're building up this church. And they're not saying, those guys tried to stone me and ran me out of town. They're dead to me. I'm going somewhere else. They went by every place to nurture that seed that had been planted and to cause the church to grow. So, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Remember how I told you that there were the three key points? God chose you, Jesus was sent for you, and the Holy Spirit empowers you. Did you see those points as we went through? Let me just recap them really quick. Acts 13, 48, God chose you. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You have been appointed to join the ranks of the Lord. And it's up to us whether we're going to accept that place. The second one, Jesus was sent for you. Acts 13, 38, 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Jesus Christ was sent for you. And then the last one, the Holy Spirit empowers you. We didn't talk about this, this, but it, it led off our entire discussion on Acts. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So you take those three key points and you try and look at, okay, what's the one synopsis that I can take away from this? And here's the point. Here's the point of the entire book of Acts. It's not that God sent Jesus to redeem us. It's not that God chose us. It's not that the Holy Spirit was sent to empower someone else. Jesus was not sent for someone else. God did not choose someone else. The Holy Spirit was not sent for someone else, more holier and more uh, with a better resume than you. The point is, all of those things, everything in this book was done for you. For you. And for the person sitting next to you. And for that person that's your neighbor who's a complete butthead and you can't stand him. You know, all this is true for him too. That person at your office who's nothing but antagonistic to you because you're a Christian, this is for him too. But the important takeaway is that all those things. All the trips they took, all the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the things they did were done for you. And it's our choice then. Are we going to take our appointed place in the ranks of the Lord? Are we going to join his army and do his will and do our part to spread the gospel to the whole world? Or are we going to reject it? That's the only thing in this that isn't preordained, is are we going to accept our place or are we not? And that should be our prayer. Amen? So as we go into communion, I can't think of a better illustration of a reason to be thankful to Jesus for what he did for us than through what he did, we are now reconciled to all of this. This is all for us. And it's through that that all those promises are real. And all those promises are for us. If that's not a good reason to be thankful, I don't know what is. So as we move about, we have communion at the crosses. You can serve yourself. We have juice there. And up here, Gabe and I will be serving. We have wine. But let's do this with thankful hearts for what has happened for us and what's about to happen through us. Amen. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you, that you sent this entire word. Every single word in this is a promise directly from your heart to us. And the only reason we don't grab it and run with it is because the enemy has deceived us that we are unworthy. But Lord, time after time, word after word, story after story in there illustrates your heart and your love for us and the fact that you will stop at nothing until your children are reconciled. And so, Lord, I pray that those with hard hearts, those who are skeptical, those who are doubting, Lord, that they would become more aware of you, that you would just flood their hearts right now and bring them to an awareness of who you are and what you have done. And so, Father, for those of us who have accepted that promise, I just pray that you make it more and more real. Lord, show us what our response to this is to be. Lord, what do you want from us? Because we want to be used by you in your kingdom. So show us where to be bold. Show us who to share the gospel with. Show us ways that we can do the miraculous through what you have promised.
Father, we just thank you for who you are and who you will always be. And we pray that in the only name that matters, Jesus Christ of Nazareth.
God, I just thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people. Unite as we lift our hearts to you. Unite with us, strengthen us, Lord. I just want to share really quickly a picture you gave me yesterday um, of Jesus sleeping on the water. And a lot of people say this was just another attempt when the wind picked up and the storm brewed to just, on Satan's part of destroying the Messiah, God's chosen one, one he sent. And very calmly, Jesus spoke to the waves and he said, be still. And they were still. He's sovereign. He's with us. And if he's with us, he can speak to our storms. He can speak to our waves. With one word, he can tell it to be still. Peace, bring it all to peace. The storm surrounding me, let it break at your name.
All my sin for 
Kindness in your sight, my history Cause you delight in showing mercy And mercy triumphs over judgment I know that you delight in showing mercy And mercy triumphs over judgment Oh love,
mercy triumphs over judgment. God, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. God, we thank you that you don't hold those things over our head, that you just want us to come and lay them at your feet. We thank you for being a merciful Father. And we just ask a blessing over this church and over this congregation this morning, Father. We feel your presence here, and it is so wanted and adored. We love you with everything that we have, Jesus. In your holy name we pray, amen. We're going to do one more song, and if you guys want to stay, then please do. But if you do have to leave, we just pray that you have an awesome week. We pray a blessing over you and your family and safety, and hope to see you back next week. Every contender